This morning, uh, the title of the sermon in the series that we're in is From Restlessness to Rest. And that's interesting because I can promise you that uh, since I've been here in Connecticut, I haven't had a more restless week. I can't even figure out how to turn it There we go. Have not had a more restless week. So, uh, no one, at least there's one person here this morning that really needs to hear this sermon, is what basically what I'm trying to say. Um, so for all of our sake, uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the light of the gospel that dispels our darkness. Lord, as, as we so often fumble around trying to uh, make a life for ourselves, fumbling around in the dark, Lord, you, you shine you shine your light on us and you you dispel that and you, and you give us rest. So Lord, this morning I pray that that's what you would do, that as we look at your word, as we come to understand what it means uh, to know you and be devoted to you, that in that we will find rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so tomorrow is uh, April and I's anniversary. And uh, I think it's 14 years. I was trying to figure that out this morning before I got up here and said it. But she's not here this morning because she broke her ankle. So um, she probably won't listen to this anyway. Uh, so I, Anyway, uh, but we have a, a Christmas tradition in our house that maybe some of you have in your house. Or maybe growing up you had this tradition. And that is we would uh, pick a day to decorate our tree and decorate our house and get real excited about it and have visions of, uh, Christmas music and eggnog and, and merriment. And then we would proceed to get in some gigantic fight about how we were going to decorate the tree or who was going to put the lights up or something like this without, without fail. Um, it even happened this year, uh, after Thanksgiving, we went to, we were going to cut down our first Christmas tree because in Florida, you just go to Home Depot and your flip flops and pick one up. So we were going to go. And on the way there, I don't know if it was what kind of tree we were going to get, who was going to cut it down, what color lights we were going to put on it. I mean, something happened. And then, of course, all of the, the restlessness from the holidays got unleashed into this one particular uh, argument. And uh, I think how often is that true of, of the lives that we lead? We have these things that, that are intended or that we think uh, will bring us joy, will bring us hope, will bring us peace or rest. And they actually have the effect of producing restlessness. (laughs) We have these things that we think are going to make us happy. We think that they're going to uh, fulfill us. And and in the end, that it's the opposite result uh, that actually happens. And when it's decorating a Christmas tree or or putting lights on the house or whatever, it's, uh, it's something that we can laugh about. But when it's something more serious than that, when when we're trying to pursue a job that we really think will make us happy and, and that doesn't work out, or uh, when there's a relationship that we're really counting on to bring us peace and joy and that doesn't work out, or when I think if I can just get my kids to behave a certain way and that doesn't work out, then the stakes are a little bit higher. And the rest that I seek in accomplishing these things uh, just stirs up again more and more Restlessness. And, and I think this is because we all have this, uh, I'll call it religious impulse that seeks to uh, make meaning out of life. 
We all have this impulse to take the things of the world and, and work with them in such a way that we would prove ourselves or that, that we would validate ourselves or that we would find some sort of ultimate satisfaction in these things. That, that impulse is inside all of us. And the scary part is generally these aren't immoral things. These aren't things that are easily identified as evil or wrong. Um, they're things like decorating a Christmas tree, which appear to be good and, and happy until all of a sudden they become our hope for peace and they fall apart. Uh, and I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is confronting in the church in Corinth. That there, there is all of this, uh, in terms of the series that we're in now, false light, false hope, false promise. In fact, if we look at verse 14 in our text this morning, Paul says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We have here is Paul planted this church in Corinth uh, with the seeds of the gospel in all of its power and simplicity. In chapter 4, he says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This was the foundation of the church that Paul planted. In chapter 2 of our text this morning, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so Paul uh, has a special interest in the flourishing of this church. He, he planted it with the, the power and the simplicity of the gospel. And now... There's these false apostles, uh, super apostles, as Paul kind of sarcastically calls them, that are coming into the church, and they are offering all kinds of things opposed to what Paul had, had to say. They were undercutting his teaching. They were undercutting his message of the power and simplicity of the gospel. In verse 4, Paul says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so Paul is looking at this church that was birthed out of the gospel message. And he's seeing these false apostles now come in, and not only are they uh, preaching a different message. Not only are they are they counterfeiting Paul's teaching, but then they're trying to discredit Paul as an apostle to be able to pe- preach uh, the message that he had preached at first. And interestingly enough, Paul says that these super apostles are using the same tactics that the serpent used in the garden to deceive Adam and Eve. In verse 3, he says, But I am afraid... That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion 
to Christ. That this false teaching, these false apostles, this false light is coming into the church and they're leading uh, the church astray using the same tactic that Satan used in the garden to deceive Eve. And that tactic is to exactly prey on our religious impulse to make meaning out of life for ourselves. To look to things other than God and his promises for our ultimate security and rest. If you think back to Genesis 3, which we read this morning, I don't think that it was a particularly shiny piece of fruit that got Eve to disobey God. But it was this whisper from the serpent that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. You will be able to make meaning for yourself. You will be able to create happiness and peace and rest for yourself. That that Satan awakened in Eve this unholy desire to uh, secure her own life. And this is exactly what Paul says is happening here in the church in Corinth. That they're straying from the power and the simplicity of the gospel because these super apostles are awakening this unholy religious impulse that they have. And it's creating all kinds of restlessness in their lives. And so Paul is going to confront this head on because he knows that one of the most detrimental things to our faith and flourishing is when we look to things other than Christ to give us the rest that only he promises. That Paul takes this matter very seriously because it's detrimental to us and to our faith to look to these false lights, these false apostles, to give us what only Christ promises. And that's really the problem with all these things that we look at. They're so insidious because they appear to be so good. They appear to be so uh, healthy. But the truth of the matter is they just can't deliver on the promises that they're making. And so Paul is going to tell us, and he's going to show us that to truly rest, we must be simply and purely devoted to Christ. Right? That's what he says in verse 3 here. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That to find true rest, to truly rest, we must be simply and purely devoted to Christ. And I think that is a single-mindedness about Jesus. A single-mindedness when it comes to our pursuit of what will ultimately satisfy us. The kind of single-mindedness that's required in a marriage uh, between a spouse. That's what Paul says, right? That I betrothed you to one husband. That the single-mindedness required required in a marriage, is a single-mindedness when, when uh, aimed towards Christ is what truly will bring us rest. Right? Think about the marriage vows. What do we say? That we forsake all others. That in a marriage, we're not saying, I promise that you are one of many loves that I have in my life. But you are the only one. And I will forsake all others, And it's this in this forsaking of these false lights. It's in forsaking of all of these other things that are promising things that they can never deliver. That this impulse we have to make meaning will finally be 
at rest. And that's what Paul is imparting to the Corinthians. That simple and pure devotion to Christ gives us rest. And it gives us rest from our reputation building. It gives us rest from our reputation building. Paul is in this time where he's being confronted by these false apostles, these super apostles. And they are, they are really not only giving a false teaching, but they're really trying to undercut Paul and his authority as an apostle at all. And at the end of verse 10... Uh, chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says, For is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Which is interesting. He says, it's not my commendation of myself. It's not my reputation and me promoting myself that, that is what's going to make me approve, but who the Lord approves. And then he starts chapter 11, in a sense, by kind of commending himself. But what does he say? He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. He says, this, this whole thing of, of proving my reputation to you, this whole thing of self-promotion, of, of laying my credentials on the table, this is, this is foolishness. And actually, in verse 6, what does he say? He says, even if I, have, if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So these apostles are coming, and they're, they're coming with all of their uh, credentials, with all of their uh, skilled in, in rhetoric and speaking, and they're making a big show of everything and proving themselves. And, and compared to, to them, Paul looks like you know, he doesn't even really have his act together. And he, and he goes and he says, this is foolishness for me to commend myself to you. Uh, this is not... This is not what being devoted to Christ is, is me laying my credentials on the table. In fact, when they uh, tell that Paul is not schooled in speaking as they are, that he doesn't have the training and the credentials, he basically says, yeah, you're right. What kind of freedom is that, that this devotion to Christ and the gospel has, that when Paul's reputation, when his credentials are called into question, he has the freedom to say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And when it comes to these false apostles, I think it's interesting that in verse 4, he says, if someone is, if someone comes, he's talking about these super apostles, he says, if someone comes. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. And I think Paul is pointing out very clearly that these apostles, they weren't sent, they just came. These are self-appointed apostles. They're appealing to you based on the reputation built by means of the world with their um, skilled speech, with their uh, show. And Paul says, yeah, I'm not skilled in speaking, but as to knowledge of the gospel, I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone. As to what's been revealed to me by, by God, I will go toe-to-toe with anyone. Paul, being devoted to Christ, knows that his authority and standing as an apostle is not built or is not dependent on the reputation that he can build with the means of the world as these super apostles, which is a sarcastic term, by the way, of these super apostles. But it's built and it comes from Jesus Christ and his gospel. And he's able to to give up this this, uh, practice of having to 
build his reputation with the means of the world, with the credentials of the world. And as I read the Bible and survey the Bible, this seems to be a theme throughout Scripture for those who've surrendered themselves to Christ and to the cause of the gospel. In fact, in in Philippians chapter 3, Paul demonstrates this himself. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And he goes and he, and he basically lists his whole resume. And then he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What a single-mindedness and devotion to Christ that he displays. And we know that he could have so easily thrown down that reputation and that resume here in Corinth. And he could have entered into the rat race of these super apostles trying to one-up each other and prove themselves to each other, but, but he doesn't do that. We see this all through Scripture. Right? We see the example, I think, of the, the parable of the prodigal son when the, when the son is coming home and it says, you know, the father who's been there waiting for his son lifts up his robe and kind of runs towards his son, in, embarrassing himself in front, of, in front of everybody because of this single-mindedness, right? Moses, his reputation even, even gets in the way, right? He murders someone, he stutters all over himself, and, and none of that seems to matter when it comes to God's kingdom, and our standing in his kingdom. And what kind of freedom would we have if we could engage the world in ways where our reputations weren't at stake? I mean, I think, how would, for me, um, how would my, my, something as simple as my parenting changed if when I'm with my children, they're not bearing the weight of my reputation as a pastor or a parent or just a good person. <laughs> that no longer do I parent in a way to try and change their behavior so that my reputation is, is lifted up and look good. Or how would, how would our, the way we, we engage in our work change if our reputations weren't at stake? Or the way that we served others? Or the ways that we treated our, our spouses if our reputations weren't at stake. There is a rest that comes from being purely and simply devoted to Jesus. A rest from this rat race and hamster wheel of constantly trying to build our reputations with the means of the world. And and Paul, in his confrontation of these false apostles preaching a false gospel disguised as an angel of light, shows us this. That we rest from our reputations and we also can rest from our scorekeeping. I think that goes hand in hand with this. Uh, if you look in verse 7, Paul, and I, he, he kind of has a sarcastic tone throughout this passage. Maybe that's why I, I like it so much. But he says in verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. One of the charges that these super apostles were uh, making against Paul is how can you trust this guy? He doesn't even charge you for his ministry. You're getting what you pay for. 
You paid nothing for this message, and it's worth nothing. That's essentially their their claim. And these super apostles, you know, it, and, and we think like that, right? If something's cheap, it must can't possibly be good, right? If I have uh, two apps that I'm going to download, and one is 99 cents and one's 2.99, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be a sucker and buy the 99 cent one. I got three bucks I can spare. This one's obviously better. And that's the charge that these uh, super apostles are making against Paul because Paul is ministering to them free of charge. And let's not think that Paul's doing this because uh, he has some sort of conviction that he shouldn't charge uh, these people because of his gospel ministry. Because in 1 Timothy 5, he, Paul says, those who labor in preaching are worth double honor. He says, those who, who, who labor among you in this way, they should be paid. And Paul's coming in to Corinth, and he's actually saying, did I commit a sin by humbling myself because I preach the gospel to you uh, free of charge? That Paul is willing to forego what's owed to him for the sake of the gospel. That he's willing to uh, give up and not demand what actually is owed to him. Right? That's what, when I think of scorekeeping, that's what I think of. I've done this for you, you owe this to me. I've lived my life this way, the universe owes me this, or something, something like that. But Paul, in verse uh, 11, he says, and why do I do this? Because I do not love you? He said, God knows I do. That it's Paul's love for the church as he's devoted to Christ. It's Paul's willingness to forego what's due him for the sake of the gospel. That he's, he's preaching the gospel free of charge. And that these accusations being made against him, he's saying, sure. In fact, I had to rob other churches. And he doesn't mean he literally robbed them. What he's saying is that those who I minister among, those should be the ones who are supporting the ministry, so that I can keep doing this, but here for you as to not harm the cause of the gospel, as to not put any obstacle in front of you being purely and simply devoted to Christ, I'm going to, I'm going to work here with you free of charge. And rarely is someone willing to give up what they think is owed to them. I mean, rarely. Uh, in fact, uh, we usually have a running list in our head of what we think we deserve. Okay, maybe I'll use I statements. I usually have a running list in my head of what I think I deserve. Whether it's from my kids, whether it's from my wife, whether it's from uh, people in general. And generally, not only do I have this list, but I have a very specific timeline in which the world should pay me <laughs> what it owes me. Right? And this, we, we get what we think we're owed, generally speaking, at the expense of everyone else around us. Where here, Paul is willing to give up what's owed to exalt those around him. Where I make it a practice of taking what's owed to me at the expense of everyone around me. And this came home to me very clearly. I told you I had a restless week. And that's because our family is really good at winter. And so last weekend, we had an accident. And um, April took the girls sledding. 
and she didn't watch her step, and she tripped, and she broke her ankle. And she was with a friend of ours that we had met. They were going to take the kids sledding. I wasn't there. I was at home with Haddon, so I was actually doing something. And, uh, and I got a phone call from, uh, from this friend and said, I think April broke her ankle. She slipped and she thought she broke her ankle. And the first thought that went through my head was, how in the world could this happen at Christmas? How? How am I going to take care of three kids and plant a church and do all these other things? My ankle's not broken, by the way, right? How could I follow Christ to Connecticut from Florida where there's no ice and no snow and this is what is given to me? You got to be kidding. It was, it was, it was, I, it was unconscious the way that I was demanding what God and the universe owed to me. And then you know what I spent doing this week? <laughs> Being owed nothing and serving <laughs> begrudgingly sometimes the other four people in my family. But the, the, the truth is, as April and I tried to process this, you know, that a broken ankle in the scheme of world events is insignificant, but in our life it's huge, is the, 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 the person and the family that she was sledding with was this family that we have been building a relationship with and ministering to and, and praying for. And, and, and we both had to come to a place, which it's, it's really the work of God in her heart, even more than mine, that she would come to the place and say, yes, for the cause of the gospel, I will suffer a broken ankle, being miles and miles away from family, in a climate I don't know, in a town that I'm just getting acclimated to, that if this is what it takes for the cause of the gospel, then this is what I will do. If this is what it takes, forget even for those people out there, if this is what it takes for our family to actually have an Advent season where we're forced to wait and depend on Christ, then this is what we will do. And we think, if for the sake of the gospel we patterned our lives after Christ, after the gospel, and gave up our scorekeeping, who would we be free to love and to serve? Those who are the hardest to love and serve? Those who could never give us anything in return? Because there's scorekeeping even in ministry work. I did this. I sacrificed, right? I, I, I went down that rabbit hole in 30 seconds after getting the news. But, but if we were purely and simply devoted to Christ, having a single-mindedness towards him and his kingdom, who would we love? And who would we serve? And what would we risk? And how would we disadvantage ourselves, not demanding what's owed to us for the sake of those around us. That we can rest from our scorekeeping, and in resting from our scorekeeping, we can rest from our worry about the future. There's a phrase at the end of this uh, section of scripture here that really stood out to me, and it's verse 15. Paul says, so it's no surprise if his servants, that Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants 
of righteousness. And, and righteousness, right, he's talking about if, if, they, if, they, if this gospel, if this teaching, if this work that they're doing, it's somehow communicating to you that by following it, you will somehow be made right with God. You will somehow be satisfied in this world. But then he says, their end will correspond to their deeds. And I think this is what is so amazing about a single-minded, pure and simple devotion to Christ. Is that our end does not correspond to our deeds. We don't look to our deeds and our work to understand what our future will be. But we look to Christ and his work and his life and death and resurrection for the hope of our future. And that's what's so detrimental to this way of engaging the world where we are in control of our rest and our happiness is that our end, if we want our end to correspond to our deeds, I know it sounds good. I know it sounds promising that we can be in control but it doesn't really work out. Because how can we be assured that our deeds will match up to the end that we want? Right, Paul, in Philippians, again, he, he talks about this kind of thinking. And he says in chapter 3, verse 19, talking about the same type of teaching, that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. That if we want our end to correspond with our deeds, then it will. And this will be the end that we're promised. But in verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A single-minded and pure devotion to Christ knows that our future is secure. Because we've actually not been tasked with making our deeds and our ends Uh, fit together. But we've actually been freed from that pursuit. And and Paul is saying here, right, these super apostles, they will be exposed for what they are. That's, That's what he's talking about. He's saying this teaching, this message, this challenge, in the end, it will be exposed as insufficient and even worse. But for us, our hope is that our end corresponds to the deeds and work of Christ. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this, and I may have shared this story with you before, and if I did, then just pretend it's good enough to hear twice. But I grew up in a household of all, I have two brothers. And so uh, when Lily was born, our first daughter, I was uh, baptized into ballet and princesses and all the other things that come along with it. And, uh, and Lily decided in preschool that she wanted to do ballet. And I don't know if anybody here has ever uh, seen preschoolers dance ballet or just imagine, seen preschoolers really do anything. You can imagine something as complicated as, as ballet. And so we go to this ballet recital. And uh, this was an after-school program, so uh, there's like 500 preschool ballerinas from all these other schools. It's like a four-hour recital. Lily's going to be up there for, you know, 90 seconds or whatever the case may be. So so, so we're there, and, um, you know, everybody's all excited. And you should see these kids come out onto the stage. 
Some of them just sat down. Just sat down, just cheer for me. Some of them just walked out and then turned around and walked right back off the stage. Some of them did the dance really well, and they will probably have a future in that. I will, for Lily's sake, not tell you which one she was. But but every single number received a standing ovation from the crowd. Whether they sat down, whether they walked off stage, whether they nailed it, whether they failed, whatever the case may be. And I, and I started thinking about this. I'm like, how confident and secure are these little ballerinas in the reception that they will receive? What freedom is there for them to walk on stage and not be scared because of the surety of their acceptance? And I think that's the rest that we gain as we are sing, single-mindedly and purely devoted to Christ. We don't evaluate everything we do based on how it will affect our reputation. We don't try and squeeze all of what's owed to us out of every relationship or job or situation. Our future is secure. Our future is secure. Because of our devotion to Christ. And the amazing thing that this Christ who we are single-mindedly devoted to, who saves us from reputation building, who doesn't settle, you know, tells us not to settle the score, who secures our future, this same Jesus gave up his reputation for us. Right? As he was born in a manger, lived life in the flesh, and was crucified on a cross as a criminal... He didn't demand what was owed to him in that moment for our sake. As he says, you know, I could call at any time and, and, be, and be rescued. As, even as he's tempted, if you're the son of God, save yourself from this cross. He could have certainly done that. And by his work and by his future, ours is secured. This is the Christ that we're called to be devoted to. This is the single-mindedness that will give us rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that in a world that is dark, there's the true light of the gospel that shows us who we are and who you are. Lord, we pray that you would work in us a single-minded devotion to you that would give us true rest. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.